0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to connect with a good industry buddy, Mr. Jeff Slack in London this morning. Good morning there, Jeff.
1: Hi, Marcus. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, and I'm looking forward to our round here, round two of our conversation. Uh, We won't go into the reason why, but uh, we have lots to cover, so I want to really dive straight into it. Um, and just give a quick intro of yourself, of course, for some of you who might not know, recognize you right away. Uh, Jeff is currently the managing director on the commercial side of the Aston Martin Cognizant F1 team. And we're always going to spend a good time talking about uh, what's happening with the team and, of course, the rebranding and everything which is happening as we speak. Um, and then we're gonna of course before that have a really good look at Jeff's illustrious career across some of the biggest names in the industry from Donald Dell's Pro surf um, and then working with David Falk of course and fame the Miller Sports group Inter Milan Wasserman IMG I mean you name it um, Jeff has been there and done it and and uh, lots of exciting stories around it of course. Uh, in your years in these particular entities and companies. So let's get started where it all started, coming out of university there and John Hopkins in the later part of the 80s, early 90s, and you landed with Donald Dell at ProSurf, which I'm certain was not as easy as it sounds like. Um, Tell us, how did you get a job with Donald? Okay.
1: God, you're making me feel uh, old anyway. It seems like a long time ago. <laughs> it is uh, a long No, time I, ago. I finished graduate school and, and, and like a lot of uh, people, I uh, had no idea what I wanted to do other than uh, the light bulb went off and that I liked sports. So it was as deep uh, deep a thought process as that. and At the time, it was really two places to go, at least from an agency standpoint, and that was IMG, which was based in Cleveland, and ProServe, which was based in Washington, where I had finished graduate school. So that was an an easy choice uh, to where to go. Getting in was a whole different scenario. It was the kind of hot shop at the time, and everybody wanted to get in. So it took about uh, six months of different interviews and meeting various people. Uh, to finally uh, land a job, and the funny part of it is, I had been a, a cyclist uh, growing up, and my dad owned a bike shop, and they had a they they had a cycling division at the time. Right. and Okay. Uh, and so that where I, where I was going to be hired to do that, and I should have for my first day at work, and I they said well, we have some good news and some bad news, and I said, "What's the bad news?" So well, we had a really bad uh, cycling event, and since we lost a lot of money, so there's no more cycling division. I yeah. said, so, okay. <laughs> What's the good news? Well, the good news is that uh, we have a spot in team sports, and that turned out to be one of the luckiest things that happened to me because their client list was incredible. Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Boomer and just a bunch of the best team sports athletes in the world. So um, I was just very lucky at the beginning.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, when you joined, um, you were already at that time working with David, um, or who was so your, your report uh, into...
1: Yeah, well, I I actually, my boss was, first boss was Fred Freed, who reported to David Falk, and then Fred subsequently left uh, a couple years later, and I I moved up and reported to David. Uh, But it was a small, relatively small group, but uh, David was clearly the boss of the team sports group, and the company was was primarily Donald with, with David and a few other partners.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, Donald has been on my podcast, and David, um, and they're both, of course, amazing characters with amazing stories behind it. Now, just before we, you know, of course, move on here on this, you know, tell us a bit about working with those two, and now we can call them legends, right? They are, truly are. Um, they obviously maybe weren't there quite yet uh, when you started with working with them. You know, well, tell us a bit about it. Just, just give some character uh, traits of, of the two of them.
1: Yeah. Well, I so said looking back on, it, it's an extraordinary. Force of wills and personalities that were able to kind of forge an industry. And yeah. you look at Donald Dell's and David's and Mark McCormick's, and we're all uh, kind of uh, uh, kids of theirs. Yeah. Uh, Donald, you know, I actually didn't work too much with. Uh, getting into Donald's office was like going to see God. And uh, <laughs> I was definitely not at that level at that point in my career. Right. Um, uh, so, but but Donald actually, you know, I've talked to him, seen him at a bunch of things, and he keeps going. So, Ah uh, David, uh, David is I, mean, I remember spending week or two with David on the road. I've never seen a harder worker. Uh, mm-hmm. he was relentless and represented his clients like, you know, if if my son were to be a basketball player, which he won't be, uh, i would I would have wanted David to represent him. He just right. was relentless and did everything he could for his clients. and you know in in the process, I'm sure that the people on the other Side of the telephone weren't enjoying it, but David was just a master negotiator and relentless and loved his job. And obviously, you know, what he did with Michael was extraordinary. So uh, it was something to work with David. Mm.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And, and you know, I, I, I remember hearing all these stories about how detailed he prepared for every meeting, right? He always wanted to be the guy in the room who had pretty much all the facts on, on hand, right? Uh, and I'm sure there's certain some interesting things to learn when you when you come in as a young man, um, you know, from guys like this. So, you know, what would be the first thing, you know, the, the thing which you sort of took took away and, and you can feel like, you know, that that helped shape your
1: career as well? Well, I think, as you said, uh, David uh, was obviously a very bright man. He's a very bright man. And in in the NBA at the time, one of the key things to understand was the salary cap. uh, And David understood that uh, as well as anybody in the industry. Mm -hmm. And that gave him a big advantage uh, when he was dealing for our clients because he would understand what teams could do. Uh, how to maximize the cap, and sometimes a lot in a, in a much more detailed way than his counterpart, say the general manager of the team with whom he was negotiating. So certainly that was it. That was the application of, uh, of intelligence. Uh, and in the agency business, often you don't get that because the barrier to entry really is, can you sign the client? And A lot of times that's your best friend or your friends or your uncle or whatever that is. Uh, and and David just used a lot of intellectual firepower. And as I said, the second was just pure hard work. When I, I I watched him, I remember traveling with him one time for a week, and he just never stopped. Right. And um, so David deserves all the success that he got because nobody gave him any of that. Uh, you know, he came from a modest family in Long Island, and he just worked hard and was good at it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great story. And now we can't move on without having a quick chat about Mister MJ here. Uh, did you sort of have direct contact with him, uh, or you were mostly there out there just selling his name? How how does it work with in the in the company?
1: No, I look again. I, I, I had a lot of good fortune in my career, and I spent a lot of time with Michael. and, uh, uh, and, and In Chicago, in the '90s, when it was kind of like being with, I would imagine, what the Beatles were in the '60s. It was a magical moment in time with the greatest basketball player ever, right. uh, with a team that was dominating in one of the greatest sports cities in the world and putting all that together. It was extraordinary. Michael is, uh, uh not only an amazing athlete, but just, he's a, uh, he's a great guy to work for. He's uh, personable. He gives you a hard time in a nice way. And mm-hmm. people that have seen the last Dance can see Michael loves to joke around and rib you and give you a hard time. He loves to compete. Uh, so it was never boring, uh, but always, uh, you know, Michael just, it was, uh, absolutely dream to work with him
0: you were on the on the commercial side right you were basically uh, finding sponsorship or commercial endorsement deals etc right is, is that, be, be
1: that exactly so yeah. yeah my my job was 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 exactly that it had nothing to do with his plane contract so you know things gatorade and other things that happened uh involved in, in those and, and managing all that uh, once the deals were done yeah, amazing.
0: Now, if I recall this correctly, so you obviously were with ProServe, and then David at one point in time, of course, left. And, and I think you, you followed him, right? You joined him, then you were with Fame for a while
1: as well, correct? Correct. So David, in 1993, uh, decided with Curtis Polk to leave and form Fame. Hmm. And so we did that, and I, I came with David and uh, was, was there from 93 to 97. Got it. Got
0: it. Now, why on earth would you ever leave there? <laughs> What
1: happened? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, I, You know, I think certainly been a theme of my career is you know you don't want to get bored or rest too much on your laurels. Hmm. And while it was an extraordinary job, you know, I kind of felt like I'd learned as much as I could learn. And um, I, I guess in, in some ways, it's always worked out for me. Uh, maybe it's been risky, but at the time, I said, you know what, uh, I want to kind of do my own thing for a bit and see what what else is out there and apply some of the things that I've learned into other fields, other elements of the sports industry. So I left and left on absolutely great terms. Um, And then uh, just kind of ran my own business, which for a fairly young person was a good experience where you had to kind of do everything. Uh, But that was certainly a great bridge to the next phase of my career. So uh, it was nothing more than after seven years, uh, it, it just, it was, I, I wasn't intellectually challenged and I wasn't learning anything new and I didn't want to do the same thing every day. And, you know, those are some sports who are fortunate enough to have good jobs. It's tough because you have a good job and why leave it? Uh, and I didn't leave to go to anything else. I just decided that it was time. And Dave and I had a nice conversation and shook hands and, you know, I'm still uh, cordial today and all of that. So, um, that was the other thing that was important to me was to, to leave on, on good terms
0: interesting so now the next up then uh, i want to just sort of go for a little bit is is the muller sports group um and of course that links to uh, you know the the project in, uh, in in south america or latin america you know with psn uh, let's talk a bit about that because again it's it's a very interesting big project anyone who's old enough uh, will remember some of that uh, but uh, you know tell us you know you were you know a senior executive in that group
1: sure uh, so uh, i had known i met roberto through his wife, Diana, who was Patrick Ewing's trademark attorney. And um, while I was in, after having left uh, David uh, and doing my own thing, I met Roberto and he had started his own consulting group called the Mueller Sports Group in New York. Mm. And and Roberto was a guy being Uruguayan that understood the the international sports space, and especially in in soccer, Mm. and, and wanted to apply Uh, U.S. expertise, sports business expertise, whether you take an NBA expertise or NFL, etc., to that world. So I thought that was a very interesting thesis. And so I joined Roberto, and we first started doing securitization programs. Uh, We had Merrill Lynch as one of our clients, and we went and helped introduce them to European football clubs to securitize various revenue streams. We also did some aggregation plays with Hasbro and Virgin Interactive, where we would go and sign uh, a bunch of European football clubs to a group deal so that those companies could have a product, like in this case, video games, that they could have the rights to multiple clubs. That then led to uh, an idea with Hicks Muse to develop a Latin American sports platform mm-hmm. that PSN was a centerpiece as the regional sports network. Right. The idea there was Latin America really is one language in one sport and of course we know that it's portuguese in brazil but you know it's not too dissimilar and of course there are places where baseball is important but for the vast majority of the continent uh, soccer mattered and and the big competitors say uh murdoch news and disney it was just a small market for them Hmm. so that was the that was the basic thesis and we started doing some things down there which was uh, quite an experience for me And, and and since i had been one of the first people in the Mueller Sports Group, and we expanded from probably 12 to 600 people very quickly. I was very lucky because I got to work on all the pieces of the business, and really on the strategic development part of it, and then running a few of the businesses.
0: Did did you end up ever moving to, to Latin America? I mean, during that
1: period, or were you always based in New York, or where were you? I was in New York, but it was literally one of those where you'd show up at the office and say, get your bag because you're flying off to Buenos Aires tonight and you go to the airport and you fly. So there was a there was a moment where I'd look to moving to Brazil because we had purchased the rights to Corinthians and Cruzeiro football clubs. Uh, but I actually at the end of the day, I did not do that. Right, okay.
0: Now, again, you know, you were there a couple of years. Um, and for all intents and purposes, the the project obviously didn't didn't work, right? It failed. And it was one of the, at that time, or at least what I remember, uh, it was one of the more dramatic failures out there, right? Because uh, a lot of money, of course, was pumped into it. And, and it's just, you know, what, what is it what didn't work? What is the, you know, from your point of view, what was it what went wrong? Or it was too early? Or, you know, you know, what, what happens, at, you know, when these things blow up? Um, what was the story here?
1: Well, I I actually kind of left before that period. Okay. Um, So I can just give you my view. Uh, But um, I went into Milan in summer of 2000 and the thing was kind of moving along in good pace then. Not that me leaving had anything to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Not well. No, I think in in retrospect, what had happened is the big bet was on creating a pay television. Uh, channel, yeah. um, primarily in Argentina, where Hicks Muse had a lot of cable subscribers. So that was an easy idea. Mm. Um, but then, of course, you had to buy rights and they vastly overestimated the amount of people they were going to pay per month and how many subscribers they were going to get. I, so the basic okay. business model was wrong yep. and they way overpaid for rights. Mm. Uh, things like Syria and Formula One. And then, when the rubber hit the road, when there just wasn't that many people in Argentina that were going to pay that much money to support those kind of rights fees, mm. uh, they had some big problems. Uh, so, I think, you know, in kind of the postmortem, that was probably the main analysis. Right.
0: Yeah, and then, well, you know, there are several of those uh, out there, uh, and there will be more, right? If you even look at OTT now, there's there's always the new batch of this, which has the same model, um, and it's still, you know, it's not an easy one. Uh, Yeah, I wish we had a bit more time to talk about the securitization part, which you mentioned earlier, because that's, again, a big one that's coming back now, right? You see, you know, private equity and also the folks rolling around the world of sports marketing now or sports um, IP, and, uh, you know, and you were doing this 20 years ago, so, uh, but we'll leave that for another day because I, I want to get to, you know, some of the other interesting parts of your career. So, obviously, as you already alluded to, you ended, you moved then to to Milan. Now, you know, and I made fun of it last time too and I'll do it again. You know, what is an American doing in Milan doing football? <laughs> <laughs> you know, as the, uh, you were the CEO, right, of Inter Milan, which obviously is a huge club, big traditional football club in, in Italy, you know, how on did you get there?
1: Well, as part of the process of looking at aggregation as well as financial services to European football clubs, because it seems obvious today, but a lot of, a lot of things that are obvious today. It wasn't obvious at the time. Yeah. You know, 97, 98, if you'd gone and visited some of the commercial departments at these football clubs. In fact, I remember going to Real Madrid and there was no real commercial department. You had to go see an accountant. Wow. So uh, the world's evolved a lot. Hmm. And we were kind of out in front of it. If we'd had capital, I think we could have really done some things. I remember at one point I had the chance to buy all of Juventus' licensee rights mm. for not a lot of money. So um, as part of that process, I got to know the major football clubs, including uh, having a nice dinner with the owner of Inter Milan. Uh, and I wasn't looking for a job, but uh, we had a nice bottle of wine. And I said to him, look, I think there's so much more to be done here. Uh, there's just a lot of opportunity that's not happening. And um, then we had a few more conversations, and, and he, he made me an offer. And I just, even though I was very happy at the time because I was running the internet business for PSN, thinking I was going to be a billionaire in a year, but um, um, I, I just said, This is too good to pass up. So yeah. uh, that's when I decided to take the job.
0: Yeah, probably a good move there. It was early 2000 here, right? Which is the internet boom and bust time, of course. And now you're in you're in Milan, uh, running Inter. Um, now again, let, let's talk a bit about that. Uh, you know, in, Milan, of course, is an interesting city, right? You got two big clubs, AC and Inter. You, they share a venue, the San Siro. Um, you know, and and there's a massive rivalry, of course, between it. And of course, you know, the other big teams in the in the in Milan in in, uh, in Italy with Juve, etc. You know, coming in. There, what, how did you really look at it? Saying, okay, what am I bringing now as an American, you know, sports executive to Italian football?
1: What was the sort of focus and target for yourself? You you think about the way sports works, uh, and and, and, and not to sound like an arrogant American, uh, I think the the fact is that the business of sports has been best done by uh, the American leagues. Hmm. Uh, I think that's a pretty factual thing to say. If you look at Europe, especially at the time, there was even not even really a place to learn how to do this. If you looked at federations like FIFA, they, of course, had sold their rights to people like ISL. So they didn't have, they were political organizations. Right. So it was actually pretty natural that you want to bring somebody over who understood the sports business and how do you maximize that mm-hmm. element of it. Yeah, and problem. today, of course, there's a number of Uh, Americans or people trained in the United States sports system that are in European football. I just happened to be the first. So I think that made a lot of sense. The question Mm -hmm. then was uh, being culturally sensitive and aware enough to understand what was the, if you want to call it the art of the possible, Mm -hmm. what could you do with Italian football? And what were the realities of the structural impediments to things? So it was finding that balance where where within could you make a difference and where, frankly, you just couldn't move the needle because it just wasn't going to happen for various reasons. Mm. And the best example of that, of course, is the stadium, which is still an ongoing discussion 20 years later. Right. Uh, and I remember very clearly, like it was yesterday, after being there two months presenting a project to Muratin Galliani, the CEO of AC Milan, uh, transforming San Ciro, And they were so enthusiastic. One week later, they called me and said, you can't do it because you're not allowed to do anything with Sen zero. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, you know, so you saw already some of the reasons why Italian football struggled, because it was a complete lack of innovation infrastructure. But we were able to do some things, uh, but but it was really that set of skills that, frankly, just didn't exist in Italy, uh, uh, but uh, somehow figuring out a way to do that within an Italian culture. Hmm.
0: Now again, uh, just to stick for another minute or two here, uh, what would you be? What would you see as were your biggest success? You know, uh, one or two things which you did, um, whether it's a big new sponsor or, or something else, where you really feel that that kind of you know made a difference to the club, uh, you know, at that time
1: or or even into the future. Well, I, I think there were a couple of things. First, uh, Inter, AC, and Juventus—obviously the three biggest Italian clubs. Uh, and there was a Telepew uh, was the rights holder in Italy and, and the rights just kept going up. And this was just kind of this uh, windfall of, of money. Mm. But AC and Juventus, just because they had strong management structures, drove all of that. And to be very frank, Inter was not well represented nor getting its fair share, given that actually it's the second most popular team uh, in Italy by right. fan bases.
0: Okay,
1: I guess the first thing that, made me feel good was I was able to uh, squeeze out a lot more money out of Telepew. If you remember the time, the Italian clubs actually had all of their rights, both domestic and international, individually. So you, oh, had, okay. to do, you okay. had to do a deal with everyone. Wow. So I was able to at least represent us well so that we had a seat at the table and not just following hmm. uh, Juventus and, and AC Milan. Right. And I think the second thing was we did do some changes at San Siro. We're able to get some suites in there. We're able to do things, some light shows. We're able to do some innovation things where people took notice and said, wow, that's Italy innovating in sports and sports uh, marketing and not just adapting other people's ideas. Interesting.
0: Now, when, during your time, um, I think mean, Inter didn't win anything, but uh, became extremely successful after you just left. So I give you credit for that, for obviously te- teaming that, teeing that up, and you know, Inter won a bunch of championships right after. I think in the in the mid two thousands, obviously partially also a bit linked to Juventus dropping out uh, because of the the scandal at that time. You know, what, what's your thought on that? I'm not not so much about winning, n- nothing, not winning during your time, but you know what did you see what was happening there within Italian football which clearly wasn't right?
1: Well, the cu- culture really matters and I had gone there with uh, sometimes an American view about uh, fairness and uh, belief in systems working and we would lose and people within the club would say, well the referee was paid off I said no, we lost the match and of course later it turned out that they were 100% right uh, and Juventus uh, had absolutely gamed the system and that's why we didn't win uh, a number of championships. So uh, what had happened after I left was that they discovered all that. And, you know, Juventus got relegated and they changed the system to at least make it somewhat fair. Although, to be fair, now Juventus is by far the best <laughs> team on merit. And, you know, is the best managed team in Italy. So I'm not c- criticizing them. But it's certainly at the time the game was rigged mm-hmm. against us. And, you know, we came very, very close several times. Um you know, and, and, and Inter did win a UEFA Cup and things like that. Not when I was there, but um, so I, I think a lot. There was no question Inter would have won a couple of Scudettos. Um, but then, of course, bringing in Mourinho in his heyday and, you know, they had that golden era and uh, no question. So it was just nice because uh, Massimo Moratti is one of the great gentlemen in sports that I've ever met and does it for passion, and has put a lot of his own money into the team and absolutely deserved that to at least be competing on a level playing field. Yeah,
0: I think he won five championships in a row, sort of, you know, 2005, I think, onwards. And, and of course, there were some big names, too, right? I mean, we got uh, Yeri, Cannavaro, Robbie Keane, and Laurent Blanc. I mean, there's some, you know, names from around the world uh, playing at that time. So, this is, you know, it was a good team, right? Um, You guys really were able to put a amazing squad together.
1: Oh, we had a spectacular team. I remember 2001, 2002, when we should have won the Scudetto, we lost in the last day to Lazio. Um and we had uh, our starting uh, strikers were Ronaldo and Christian Vieri, so right. we had well, we a yeah. amazing football club. You know, at the time, Italian football was the most popular in the world and right. and the most competitive league in the world. And again, I think uh, if you're looking at it with a critical eye, it, the Italians have to say we've screwed this up because at the time, you know, you know, Ronaldo obviously went from Barcelona to Inter. At his height, that would never happen today. It goes the other way. Hmm. So uh, Italian football just hasn't evolved as it should. It had a great place of prominence and some real advantages uh, that it squandered. I think uh, objectively, you could say that. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And as I said, that that's probably a whole podcast on its own. But uh, we'll move on from there uh, because we. I want to then now talk a bit about your. Was it almost 10 years then, uh, which you spent in some of the biggest agencies in the world here? You know, from Wasserman Media to IMG Football, of course. And but let's let's have a quick hop into Wasserman. So I believe from Inter you ended up in London uh, with uh, with Wasserman. Um, what was that role about? Um, you know, what was it sort of? I think you were running their European operation. But um, you know, what is exactly what you guys were doing at that time?
1: Sure. Uh, well, well, first, you know, I, I just discover, everyone as you go through your career, I think you start discovering what you're good at, what you're not good at. And I like to build things. And I uh, was lucky enough to meet Casey Wasserman. And, you know, we know where Casey is today. Yep. He's one of the uh, you know, leading lights in sports. You know, at the time, he was a pretty young guy with some capital and a vision. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to build a kind of IMG. And he asked me to help him do that by starting in Europe. Uh, given my football and other experiences they'd had some experience in naming rights and done the uh, emirates deal for arsenal so we started kind of in that space Uh, we then did some acquisitions and acquired uh, sfx football agency so became one of the largest uh, talent representatives in the Premier league and in england uh, and really built it from it started with you know two or three people in a in a, in a rented office to uh, a really big business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just a thrill to be a part of. And you, know, you couldn't work for a better person than Casey. So, um, you know, that was, that was really a fun time.
0: Yeah. Okay. So he's a rock star for sure. And hopefully I'll get him on the on the podcast too, eventually. I've been chasing after <laughs> yeah. him. A uh, little okay. shout out there to him. But uh, yeah, he's a busy man. And of course Wasserman is, is is amazing what they've done over the years. And I'm sure when you joined, it was still a bit earlier days there. Now, from then you moved on to IMG. And again, you know, this isn't just IMG. This is the football division. Um, I believe you became the, the senior VP for football, again, out of London. Now, If I recall again, you know, some of the parts which, which IMG was doing at that time is forging a bunch of alliances or, or joint ventures around the world, right? One was a CCTV in China, uh, with a reliance group in India. That's at least sort of in my part of the world here, things I recall. Um, I think, and I believe you were involved in some of those, right? Okay. Let's talk a bit about that.
1: Sure. So uh, when Mark McCormick passed away, uh, it was before I joined, the company was sold to Teddy Forrestman, right. and, and Teddy uh, was a financier, but also really a visionary in a way. And he saw the world and he understood that China and India in particular, were going to be really important uh, down the road, just look at the economic and the demographic trends. And he together uh, joint ventures in China with CCTV, which is extraordinary because that's the state broadcaster. Yep. As you well know, Mark, you're an expert in that area. Yep. And then secondly, with Mukesh and Reliance in India. And of course, Mukesh has only gotten more successful, a lot more successful since then. Yes, he's huge. And uh, <laughs> So uh, we had these two joint ventures. And it, 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 we also ultimately did one in Brazil with a guy who wasn't as successful, Aiki Batista. But... And um, the football was the driver behind both the Indian uh, and and uh, and the, the Chinese ones. So that's where I got involved and really spent a huge amount of time. And I probably went to China 50, 60 times in the course of three or four years in India equally. In India, we, we created and launched, after a lot of work, the Indian Super League, yeah. that modeled on the IPL, which IMG had been involved with and had a lot of experience. And in China, and I think one of the things that I'm most proud about in my career was we really turned around the Chinese Super League's marketing uh, when we, we got into it in 2009, when it's really the depths of its cor- corruption challenges uh, and uh, brought in David Beckham as a football ambassador uh, and 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 built that up to you know a huge multiple commercial revenue increase that coincided with really the economic growth in China. So those were two great projects to work on,
0: yeah interesting and and again, you know this is obviously my neighborhood here where I've been hanging out for a while and, and so I, I saw some of the stuff from from the other side here, and the CCTV story always was that that it was always a bit of an awkward. Sort of, uh, maybe love, hate relationship is the wrong word even. Um, but it, it you know, the, there was a, a, the trust wasn't there. That's what I keep hearing, you know, from people, some of the guys who work for you probably there in China and also from the CCTV side that, you know, it, that it was sort of a bit of a marriage, you know, sort of created, but it wasn't really, no one really knew what to do with it. How, how did you sense that or feel, you
1: know, that was happening or, or not really? Well, look, again, it's really even you're much more of an expert in that area. I can tell how I felt about it. Mm. CCTV was a a stamp of approval. Mm. We didn't really work with them very much. They were a stamp of approval because that was the Chinese government approving its relationship with IMG and everything we ended up doing with the CFA and the CSL. So that's really where that that worked. And I think that worked very well. Uh, And that was Teddy's vision. You had to have, as you well know, you had to have the political uh, approval for people to want to do business with right. you. But the other thing that was astounding to me, and I still remember these meetings, is that IMG had been instrumental in the creation of both the CBA, the Chinese Basketball League, uh, and the and the CFA. Right. And there's a gentleman whose name now escapes me, but uh, who was there in kind of the 90s, the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s, putting those things together. He ultimately passed away and was even buried in China. We went to see them, and they hadn't seen somebody from IMG in a while, say, at the CSL. He he was revered, and IMG was revered, and you saw the power of the IMG brand Hmm. uh, from that standpoint, and they remembered that. They remembered that we were there at the beginning and, and getting involved with them, and that went a long way as well. So between the two things, it was extraordinarily successful. Uh, project. I mean, I think almost a business case study of how do you go in and, and revamp a property and sell it correctly and in the midst of very complicating politics and uh, competing interests and all of that stuff that happens in China. And the key there was I had a great partner named Adam Zhu mm-hmm. uh, from an IMG standpoint. Without that, uh, as you well know, in China, you get nowhere yeah. unless you're local and you understand how the place works.
0: Absolutely. No, no. And and again, if you look at the Chinese Super League now, um, from where it came from, the old days where Marlboro, I think, was one of the earlier sponsors even. And of course, uh, what is now, uh, it's massive. And and I, you know, I I say this out, you know, maybe tongue in cheek a bit, but uh, I believe the Chinese Super League has the potential to become the biggest football league in the world, um, purely because a, it's in the biggest country in the world, which has a huge passion for football. Um, It has a very political will behind it to make football ball, huge and big and bring the World Cup and everything else, of course. And so, yes, maybe that, that's what people said about the U.S. as well, and, and MLS will probably never you know, uh, be bigger than NBA or any NFL. But I, I do believe there is nothing stopping China from one day being bigger than the Premier League, in my view.
1: What, what's your thought on that? I feel like I've had this conversation with you before. <laughs> you might, huh? I, as you might be aware, I, I have uh, a slightly different view, I think the thing I learned about China, several things, but it's a very proud country. It yep. doesn't see itself as a newcomer. It sees itself as uh, a rebirth or you know, coming back to one of the great civilizations, which of course they did have at one point, one right. of the most advanced civilizations on, on the planet. Yep. And they have to be good at things. And the reality is right now they are not good at football. That's true. And until <laughs> they can develop football players and, and, you know, if you spend time in that, and I have spent time in that, it's a ten or fifteen-year project, which the Chinese are very good at. Yeah, yeah but then it's combined with, well, they do. But then you combine that with, you know, a lot of uh, only children, huge focus on education, Uh for whatever reason, they've been obviously very, very successful in individual sports, Olympic-related sports. But in football, they just haven't gotten there yet. Mm-hmm. So I think until the team, you know, China is successful. Uh, the, you know, you're know, you just not going to have a domestic league that's going to be anywhere near as competitive as being able to turn on your television and watch the Premier League or the Barcelona and, and, and Real Madrid play. Till you do that, uh, the Chinese are going to continue to aspire to European leagues. And I just think that's a long-term project. Yeah.
0: No, no, that's a fair point. And again, you know, it could be a longer debate, but uh, we won't have the time here today to get into that. Uh, even though it's fun, I think it's, um, I, I watch, of course, I, you know, I, we've done a lot of work with them as well outside, more outside of China than in China. Um, but I think there is a lot of lakes to it. Uh, and I, I just want to share a last funny story before we get into a bit more of the other entrepreneurial parts is that when you were guys are actually building the, uh, the Indian Super League, we were competing against you. Uh, we had partnered up with CAA. Uh, Not the CAA, which is there now. That was uh, Phil Lyons and uh, Peter Canyon. Yeah, Peter Canyon, correct. Uh, It it was had another name. It was CAA something. I can't remember what it was, the exact name of it. But uh, it was obviously part of that group. And so we had put together it TPG. uh, uh, I can't remember the name now. But uh, anyway, we had. Yeah, exactly so uh, we had put together a, um, a basically a competitive bit against the IMG bit uh, and I think we were used let's put it this way in a simpler sense um, I think mean, they were not quite happy with the terms again I'm telling you what I what I heard from the other side around right at that time that you know there were certain clauses in the in the IMG agreement on the league they, they weren't happy with it was too much control by IMG and this and that and whatever right the usual stuff which they would tell us and so we came up with a I was, what I thought was a pretty competitive offer, and and uh, and we were sort of addressing the pain points, which maybe was in your document at that time. And then what we heard happened basically is that Mukesh Ambani made one phone call, and that was the end of the story. Um, if you recall, the president at that time was also the minister of. I think telecommunication, right, and so obviously uh, Mr. Ambani has a little bit of firepower there, <laughs> owning a yes. telco and other things. Yeah. So, now you know. So, at the end of the day, you know, it was a good exercise, uh, and of course, IMG then put the league together, which is, for all intents and purposes, still a bit struggling, right? I mean, I don't know how much you watch it, but uh, it hasn't really taken off, right? It hasn't become an IPL yet. Um, you know, what what do you think is is the the issue in India? You know, we we just touched on China when it comes to football.
1: Yeah, I think there's a myriad uh, of issues. Uh, they're, they're even obviously much farther back in terms of the player uh, skill sets. Yep. Uh, you've got uh, t- timing problems just because you can't really play a full season. And, of course, you have the existing league, the I-League, and a lot of structural challenges. Right. And, 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 you know, football, you know, it's cricket, cricket, cricket. We know in India, football's yep. a long way from that. In China... You can make an argument that football is the most popular sport. If not, it's right up there with basketball. So I think you have a number of challenges that uh, to, to deal with, and certainly not an easy model. And the economics are not easy because you know you don't have the other thing is you know the, the kind of per capita income. You're not going to get a lot of money at a gate. The the broadcast fees are going to be relatively small. Again, they don't have a great pay TV market in terms of people being able to afford a lot. So there's a lot of macroeconomic issues. Whereas you look at a country like China, that you know the wealth creation has been extraordinary. There's a bunch of issues that go along with that. I still am a big believer in India, and I think long term having those kinds of sports assets, especially on uh, kind of a franchise model, is is pretty good. Uh, but you know, clearly uh, not easy.
0: Yep. No, no I agree And it again it's, it's a longer d- deeper topic uh, but uh, what I want to jump in here now is you know after basically all the, the amazing career you already had at that time um in spending sort of you know but almost 10 years with in the big agencies here you've sort of went on your own right um, I would say uh, from what I can see here it was it 2014-15 um, you went out there and you created js3 um, and started to you know get involved in a host of different projects. Uh, what was the the catalyst of that? Um, you know, Was it just uh, time to kind of jump in uh, back and be an entrepreneur, or what was the trigger?
1: The, the trigger was that uh, IMG was sold to uh, Endeavor Silver Lake, okay. and as senior executives we had the opportunity to kind of cash in all of our stock options and mm. all that stuff, and so there was an economic moment that was helpful combined with the fact that, uh, you know, I had really enjoyed working with people like Ian Todd and Mike Dolan at IMG and, you know, they were all leaving. And, you know, it was at the time in my career where I just wanted to work with people that I knew and I liked and nothing against uh, the, the new people. I didn't know them very well, but it was just a perfect moment in my career to say, okay, this is the time to kind of go back to what I really love to do, which is put together deals and work with people that I know. And I have a great network and I have the some economics and have some financial background to kind of combine uh, sports and finance a bit. Uh, so it, and, and just it's a also very nice lifestyle in the sense that you don't have a lot of meetings and politics and things like that that go along with larger organizations. So it was a it was an ideal moment really.
0: Hmm, nice, nice. Uh, no, so let that, you know that's the sort of where we are now or so it's pretty much what you did the last 5 years you know before we're going to get to the Aston Martin part of the story here. So just quickly touch on a couple of projects you were working on. I know you've done quite a bit of work with Ricardo da Silva. Uh, I know you sit on his board. Uh, you obviously did something with his football team in in the US and did some stuff with FIBA and then you know all sort of interesting projects. How do you know maybe just pick one or two to just give a bit more meat to it?
1: Sure. The FIBA one was very interesting because essentially FIBA, as you'll know, uh, has kind of neglected the club business for a long time. Uh, Mm -hmm. The EuroLeague was created, which was completely out of their purview. For federations, it's very complicated, as we see now what's going on with Champions League and Super Leagues and football to not have uh, involvement and control. And so essentially, we put together a project. We raised three or four million dollars and we went, we started having conversations with zero league clubs to see if we could kind of unify all this. Ultimately, they then took that offer and were very smart about it and ended up getting IMG, ironically, (laughs) to pay them a bunch of money uh, to to kind of up that. Um, But we then helped uh, FIBA create the, the Basketball Champions League. Uh, which is still going on today, which is FIBA's uh, club competition. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was really a, a multi-year project. It started with one objective and um, ended up with uh, with FIBA creating a pretty interesting competition on its own. So that was that was uh, a really enjoyable project.
0: No, oh, cool. Now you, I know you did something with Vive Sports China. What was that again? I can't remember exactly what we. were well, That was in. Uh,
1: my my old partner Adam Ju, and uh, again, looking at ways to bridge the gap between European football and China, whether those are on sponsorship deals or team deals, player deals. So we had a, a number of things going on there. Uh, we did a lot of advisory work. Um, we teamed up with Blackstone on on football financing. It was really a fun—it is still a fun because it still exists and still goes on. The projects that we, we just talked about are, are still still happening. And we did a bunch of investments. Uh, one in the Brazilian football agency, uh, for, which we bought from Traffic, called The Agency. Mm. Chairman of that, we represent players like Vinicius uh, Martinelli, uh, Marcus Paulo, who just signed with Atletico Madrid. That's an old colleague of mine from the Hicks Muse days. So there, there was a number of deals like that that were done that were just really exciting stat sports I'm on the board of that business right. that's a, 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 a Irish based. Ah, Northern Irish-based uh, company that is the leader in in uh, GPS technology for player training. That's got most of the major football clubs in the world, uh, mm-hmm. as well as rugby, etc. So things like that. Very entrepreneurial. Is that the same
0: stats which is now part of Perform or or joint with no, Perform? No, know. different stats. No, it's All called
1: right. stat Sports. I know it's a bit confusing. No, it's when you see the guys wearing those halter bras almost uh, when they take their shirts off in football. This is a device that goes right behind their head on their neck, that is by far the most sophisticated in the world at measuring all kinds of different data points, uh, accelerometers, how hard you get hit, et cetera. So okay. it's a leading company in that space, Interesting. and great guys that started. So it was things like that. There were, again, mini equity-based, because my model there was, Look, I'm not so worried about the salary. I'm worried about an upside. So mm. we, created, we created a really nice portfolio. I uh, had a good investment in a company called Via Gogo, which was a secondary ticketing business. So it was really applying uh, sports and finance and looking for deals and getting involved in that area because I had a lot of experience in that and I had a good network.
0: Yeah, nice. Now, obviously, something then triggered your fancy to where you are now. Um, you know, and I can see what easily why it is an exciting opportunity to get involved in a, a former one team, B uh, team, which has Aston Martin on the front of it. Um, so how did, you know, all, you know, from your, let's call it, you know, cushy and, and, and enjoyable role, which you were just talking about, you know, how, how did someone lure you into back into the world of, uh, you know, Formula
1: One now here. So, yes, these things, at least for my career, there's been moments of serendipity or chance that have turned out. uh, I was introduced to Lawrence Stroll. Uh, Lawrence uh, is uh, is just a world-class entrepreneur, Uh, has made several billion uh, in developing brands like Tommy Hilfiger, Michael Kors, uh, Ralph Lauren. Uh, and he's also a, a passionate uh, motorsports fan. He uh, bought Force India at a bankruptcy, I think, August 2018. Right. His son, Lance, is also a world-class race car driver. The team was renamed Racing Point. So Lawrence had that, which is interesting. This Racing Point itself was really a placeholder, not a big brand, especially compared to a Ferrari or Mercedes. Yep. Even more interestingly, Lawrence then purchased a controlling stake in Aston Martin, the car manufacturer, which right. is a publicly listed entity. Now that's where it got uh, interesting because he was he then didn't put the two together and they're, they're completely separate uh, legal entities but Aston Martin signed a long-term agreement with Racing Point uh, to become the Aston Martin Formula One uh, team. Right. And that's when Lawrence came to me as he was in the process of building that out and said, look Jeff, um, I've got to you know, now, now create an organization that can take advantage and and execute on this, and so I, I wasn't looking for a job. And at first, frankly, I said, "Look, I'll be a consultant." And and, he, and they just said, "Look, you know, I really need you here full time, and, and can you to do what you're doing with JS3 on those projects and help us?" And and so that's that's how it started. Right, right, right.
0: yeah. And and your role is on the commercial side of business, right? That's uh, you know the best description, right? Uh, as a managing director, to go find the money, and and
1: create commercial structures. But would that be correct? Yes, in the sense that. I mean, I could hardly change a tire, let alone uh, understand anything to make a race car go faster. I mean, I think it, the the vision's a bit broader than that because I think we have a big vision in terms of value creation. I think mm-hmm. if you look at what's happening in Formula One with cost caps, uh, and these are really franchises, and you look at what's happening with franchise values in the United States, I think there's a we're trying to create enterprise value here. So, um, it isn't just about the money; it's about That's creating it. a really solid platform that includes fans. So one of the big areas that I've focused on has been social and digital. Right. We've really up our abilities in that area because all of this has to work. Of right. course, at the end of the day, you do want it to work commercially. Uh, and we have had a big focus and a lot of success in that area. But the idea is to lay down a very strong platform upon which to build you know, a world-class sports organization that can do everything from find a sponsor, activate the sponsor, get fans, Sell them merchandise, uh, be incredible in hospitality, uh, have great communications. All of these things need to come together. So it's a it's a pretty good remit in terms of trying to build that platform from. Yeah, fairly, like fun. Modest base.
0: Yeah, and and, and again, you know, there are two sort of things to it. Number one, of course, Lawrence is kind of. Currently being seen as sort of maybe the smartest guy in, in F one, and, and there is a lot of other smart folks out there. So, uh, but you know, you see a lot of stories around it. How um, you know he's bringing the pieces together? How he bought the team? You know, and even success, the success the team had last year. So under the uh, uh, under the old name Racing Point, right? Um, you, you know, one of the first competition, first race. Um, you know, and, and came obviously, you know, fairly, uh, what was it, I came third or fourth in, a, in, fourth. in, well, fourth
1: in the... Fourth. Third until the last
0: race. Right, okay, Yes, yeah. so I remember somewhere there, um, you know, with Sergio Perez obviously winning his cup, um, and of course his son racing and doing really well as well there, so it's it's an interesting combo I guess of father and son um, team there in some sense, and then, you know, bringing, you know, now bringing Aston Martin into the picture, I mean, that's, uh, that's it's fun, It's it looks like, I mean, how does it, you know, working with them and and you know how do you see this from you know the history of the team which comes all the way from the jordan grand prix team which is actually when we did some work with them in the early 2000s there when damon hill was their driver then being Force india and now you know where you're at now so i mean how do you guys play that the history and of course the excitement of what aston martin is you know how do you sell this what's the story here
1: well of course there's a huge base which is an incredible 500 people that have Way outperformed for years, given their budgets. Hmm. So I don't know if you follow football. It's like at Atlanta or Ajax or something, or Leicester City. These guys have just been punching way above their weights, and so right. you've got that base. That that's where it starts. Right. But then you add to it, Lawrence, and Lawrence really is a visionary. You know, that he saw the value of the Aston Martin brand coming back into Formula One and how important that was and what a difference. And believe me, over the next few weeks, you're going to see what that looks like, which is absolutely game changing. I think the biggest news in Formula One this year will be the return of Aston Martin as a works team. And it's going to make Formula 1 all of itself more valuable. So you combine that a, race, a serious race team, giving it even more resources because we've been having some success on the commercial front, taking Lawrence's vision, which also was to you know, get, have a partnership with Mercedes and get access to the best stuff, which right. is why we were very fast last year. Which upset the other teams, but it was completely done correctly. And the fact is, Lawrence did what you had to do. You can't, you know, an individual team in Formula One can't go out and develop its own engine or wind right. tunnels cost $40 million. So anyway, he, he really got it. And so Lawrence's vision is now coming together. So I think combine those two things uh, with an organization that can take advantage of that, that we're creating on the commercial side. As long as we go fast on the, on the track, we're going to be, it's going to be a really, uh, really interesting year.
0: Yes, two questions here. One is, of course, you know, we all know, um, you know, Formula E and, and other, let's say, uh, you know, non uh, uh, regular engine powered cars, is, it's a big thing. And and so how do you guys find that balance between still being relevant and, and showing that, you know, F1 is means something and the history there, versus, of course, you know, you know, the, the new the new world out there? Um, what's the sort of how do you guys pre- present that to sponsors and others?
1: I tell you, when I when I was contemplating taking this role, of course, that was a question, which is you don't want to take something that you can't be successful at. And there's no doubt you could make an argument. There's been headwinds mm. against Formula One. Uh, little did I know the headwinds would include a global pandemic, which, yeah. which you know didn't allow you to have hospitality, and of course, really hit the P and L of many many companies. Yeah. So that <laughs> that it was incredible. And second, we were starting from. Really, a very low base from a social standpoint. So, those were, and of course, the environmental challenges and all that. So, there were some real challenges. I've been astounded at the um, level of interest in the team. It's mm-hmm. been, I think, I don't, I'll, I'm going to sound a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know, hyper, hyperbolic here, but we will announce in the next few weeks seven or eight deals. I don't think any Formula One team has ever created so much new commercial activity. And then you combine that with the fact that these are people with whom we've never even had been able to have face-to-face meetings or take them to a race as our guest. And I think it's it's a testament to uh, the, the value of the Aston Martin brand. Uh, so um, that's um, – and I th- the other thing is that I think where I, I have been really pleasantly surprised is if you have a tech – a technology – And of course, uh, that space has done so well in the pandemic. It's just grown more important than ever. We can't. None of us can imagine not having access to our technology today. Uh, It's generally business to business and it's global. And if you want a platform, Formula One is the best platform to showcase technology. There's no question. I mean, I I love football or uh, basketball, American football. But they aren't technical-based sports. Uh, 41 is all about the height of technology and applying it. It's it's literally like building an airplane, frankly, not a car, and trying to keep it on the ground as opposed to having it take off. (laughs) So we've just had a lot lot of success with, with that combined with the Aston Martin brand. Yeah.
0: and that's an interesting. At least, as nicely in the in the next one. I mean, I actually was working with Aston Martin before on some branded real estate project where we were putting the brand on a building um, in downtown KL. And it didn't happen, but uh, it was quite fun, and, and I learned a lot about the brand. But you know, but so Aston Martin has that legacy, you know, being in the James Bond movies and all the stuff. But your actual partner, which is co- you know, it's called the Aston Martin Cognizant F1 Team. Now, again, um, I had to Google it because I had have to admit I'd never heard of Cognizant cognizant um apologize there but uh you know so that is it's a big it firm right out of the u.s um so how did they get into it right i mean it's almost the complete opposite here right aston martin is the history and then you got cognizant which is really all about the future so how do the two things combine
1: i I think you're right none of us had really heard of cognizant i don't think they were offended if you'd say that to them. i think they're the most good unknown Fortune 200 company in the world. They are a Fortune 200 company in the world with, I think, up to $19 billion of revenue, market cap around $45 billion, 300,000 employees. This is a very serious company. They have a CEO in Brian Humphreys, who is uh, an industry veteran, uh, aggressively taking the company forward. They want want to be a leader in digital transformation. Hmm. And so they're looking at sponsorships as a way to make sure that their brand gets out there. And we were one of the companies with whom they decided to work uh, to do that so that people like you, Marcus, who run businesses say, oh, yeah, I know Cognizant. I've heard of that. Sure, I'll talk to them. So yeah. that's, and, I, and, I, and hopefully we'll be successful in it. So that's the reason that we were able to come together.
0: Yeah, no, great. And, and again, having I, I mean, looked at up what they do, is they an AI, digital engineering, um, you know, internet of things. So again, what you mentioned earlier, you know, what you guys are doing, building a brand, building community. Uh, I'm, and, and of course, within the car itself, there's tons of those things with. Right? it may probably less of internet of things, but maybe the AI and other parts. So I'm assuming this isn't just a partnership where they pay a good check, hopefully, but uh, there's going to be tons of collaboration and, 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 I guess, business development is going on as well, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. They're in our factory. They'll have people in our factory that are already there. They're they're there to help us make our car go faster and make sure our we as a company are at the cutting edge of, you know, kind of digital transformation. And they, you know, they're working on the same thing with Aston Martin, the car manufacturer. So, you know, this is not all about writing a check. This is about an integration of two uh, competencies uh, in order for us on our side to achieve our objectives, which is to win races and on their side uh, to make sure the world understands uh, their capabilities. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, we've both been in, in the world of sponsorship forever uh, and that's what it really is all about, right? Finding those sort of partnerships which make just make complete sense, right? For both sides of the of the aisle, um, both sides learn, both sides, you know, win at the end of the day in some fashion, right? Uh, and, and this sounds like a, as a as one of those nice examples.
1: That's right. Well, I think the good thing about sports, is we all know, I don't know, you take somebody that owns a football club, if you just looked at it on a pure valuation, so that club might be worth, let's say 300 million euros, but the notoriety, the importance of that team, because it's sports is so great that anybody associated with that gets that rub off factor as opposed right. to somebody else might own a billion dollar company nobody's ever heard of, like a lot of these tech companies that right. none of us have ever heard of. And I think that's exactly why what, what is great about the power of sports in Formula One, it's a global entity is even better because that's what these companies want. So 100% is to how do you put those two things together so the Cognizant gets the rub off of the Formula One team and the Aston Martin brand, and we get access to their expertise. Yeah,
0: that yeah. Yeah, makes complete sense. And you mentioned, I think, you know, just said sort I of heard it correctly, that they obviously will work directly with, with Aston Martin with the, let's call it the car side as well, right? So it's not just the F1
1: team, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's a nice, nice combo. They certainly need um, you know, a lot of help in, in making their manufacturing and everything else they do. You can imagine parts and ordering all that stuff, ERP, etc., that you do with big manufacturing organizations seem more important for them from an efficiency standpoint. Uh,
0: let's, let's talk for a minute about my fellow countryman, Mr. Sebastian Vettel, um, who's obviously joined the team and um, replacing Sergio, who, again, for all intents and purposes, did incredibly well last season. But uh, Sebastian is a four-time world champion. Uh, and so it's a little different catalog. Different of fish there so uh again i'm so sure it's part of the big picture but uh, t- tell us a bit about it
1: it's a huge statement of intent on behalf of the team as you say i think he's one of the third most races in the history of formula one mm. this is a world-class race car driver with a great pedigree uh who's german and obviously that's also a big important market so uh we couldn't be more excited we've done we just did a shoot the other day with seb he's been in our uh, in our factory, uh, on things, and you know, just this, this is like having a, an engineer in the car. Uh, it's not my side of the business, but even just in talking to them what he understands about a race car, yeah. the ability for him to back to his, his, the, the engineers, is going to help us make go faster. In addition to obviously his world class skills as a driver, and I think also for us as Aston Martin, it's a big statement. We're no longer, you know, kind of a mid uh, mid grid team that's. You know, just kind of punching above its weight. We're Aston Martin, Cognizant Formula One team with the four time world champion, as well as in Lance, one of the greatest young drivers at 22 years old. So put those those things together and it'll, it'll be fun.
0: Yeah, it's a good combo. No, I, I love it. I, I can't wait to. I think the, what is the first race in Bahrain this, this year, right? If I recall the calendar.
1: In yeah, March. Bahrain yeah, uh, into right? March. Yeah. Uh, Australia got pushed back, would be the traditional open in yeah, Melbourne, correct. but they got pushed back into November.
0: Yeah. So, so when it, when is the big launch? When when can we see the car? When is what's the date? Is there an official date already?
1: March third.
0: March, March yes, 3rd. there
1: is. It was announced yesterday. All right. So okay. if you go on uh, any of the social media channels, uh, and it'll, it'll be open. It's a digital launch, as we are today, which I think in some ways is great because it's open to the world. So yeah. anyone can watch it, uh, and I think um, you know worthwhile tuning in. It's not going to take a long time, but it's going to be a really well. Uh, created performance, and ultimately going to get to see what an Aston Martin Formula 1 car looks like.
0: Yeah, I can't wait. I, you know, I mean, you know, the the iconic green. My assumption is might have something in the car, but who knows? Uh, you know, looking forward
1: to seeing uh, it. It's a fair assumption, Marcus.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I guess it wasn't that far off there. Um, but no, that's amazing. So I, I'm really looking forward to that, and and wishing you all the best there with a the, with the, with a the new team and the, and the season, of course. And but you know, before we let, before we sort of wrap this up here, let, let's talk a bit about F1. You know, if more in a general sense, right? You know, we had a you know, I would say a very challenging calendar 220, right? A lot of the races uh, didn't happen in their traditional places. Um, they were, you know, had to be it was almost hovering around Europe there. Um, now again uh, the the virus isn't quite gone yet, um, you know, but the the calendar, at least uh, what I've seen so far, is pretty much a global calendar, right? It's still more or less what, what F1 used to do before. Um, what's the challenges there uh, and what do you hear from F1 directly already of yes, we are going to pull this off one way or the other, or there's chances that we go back and, and maybe have to be more hanging around Europe again? You know, what, do you, what do you see the 2021 season looking like?
1: First, I think you have to take your hat off to, to F1 for 2020. I, I, extraordinary. Yep. We, we ended up doing 17 races. You know, it used to be an 18-race calendar, so you know it wasn't like a part of a season. Yep. Absolutely extraordinary job in going to new circuits that you know, we're really cool, like Porto Mal. And so I, I think uh, you just have to say amazing. Hmm. Uh, we're also a bit lucky because formula one uh, fans are obviously very, very important, especially important for the local promoters and the economics associated with that. And the, ambiance around that but the race itself on television thing still looks good without uh, a ton of fans a little different than say a football match so i I think they did great with that you know i I hear very positive things i think there's still some uncertainty when fans will be allowed back in but they just confirmed portamao the other day so we started in bahrain i think imola portamao and then we get into european races uh, everyone is just waiting to see what happens as it relates to COVID and uh, the government's decisions in the various jurisdictions as to, to do that. But the racing is going to happen. And, and the goal is to have 23 races this year course that depends a bit on what what goes on medically mm-hmm. but um i i'm very very optimistic about it i think we're getting on the right side of this thing and 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 i think formula one is as adapted to this as anyone i think last year was really the tough year i think this year they'll do fine uh we're all i think the only question mark really is at what point can you actually have fans back in the track
0: yeah no, no, I agree, and I'm certain what what they're doing is probably they always have. There's a plan A, which is the calendar you're seeing, and then there's a plan B, right? So, if for some reason that country shuts down, where which is supposed to host the race for whatever reason, um, there is already a, a backup venue which is ready to go. That would be my assumption. What I'm sure what what uh, the the F1 management team there is putting together. So, uh, yeah, logistics on it is amazing, uh, and there are many other sports who can learn from that. Uh, never mind what a team has to do, of course, to travel uh, in this. So, so how does it work? You guys all travel in a bubble, and or how does it physically really look like?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely chartered flights, bubble. Uh, you know, staying in your with your team. Uh, people very cautious about all of the precautions that you need to take. Regular testing all the time. Uh, I think I think our team was the most tested team in the, the paddock last year. So great protocols put in. Incredible effort because again, you're globally traveling. It's not just staying within one country yeah, so definitely. the logistics were extraordinary so i just take my hat off i think they did an incredible job in the fact they got 17 races last year and that makes me very optimistic that this year you know again you had know, to take a view but i think we're, we're going to the, you know the, the downside of this and with the vaccines being rolled out that um that this will we'll get the 23 races in and again the only question mark to me is at what point do you actually have fans back in hospitality what that looks like at the races
0: Yeah, 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 well, I'm looking forward to as well. I I, to go to a couple of the races here in the region, and and they're fun. So uh, looking forward to coming back there. Um, Now, is there any prediction here, or is there a target for the team where to finish? So you said you finished fourth last year. You know, somewhat unlucky, maybe not to come third. Um, You want to be a top three team, I'm assuming, right? Or or what is the vision?
1: I think that's actually right. This year's top three team. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think. uh, And and again, it's not my area of business. So maybe talking out of school, but. Uh, you know, Lawrence is not, uh, he's not a guy to finish fourth or fifth. And you know, the team has the resources and the talent. And last year, uh, for a number of reasons, we were certainly uh, probably the third fastest car out there. And I would hope that that continues this year. Yeah. Um, I think Red Bull and Mercedes, you know, will continue to be faster. And so it just depends on kind of what happens during race day. Uh, but certainly, uh, ambition would, would be to be a, a team in the top three this year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, let's see what happens with Ferrari. They they definitely didn't have a good year last year, um, but a Mercedes engine will uh, will help. Um, you know, it's a, it's clearly the best engine out there for right now. Um, so, well, I think that's nicely wraps it up here, Jeff. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, for a second time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate it. This was, was fun, uh, great stuff, insight, uh, amazing uh, learning from your own career and uh, and what you're doing now there with Aston Martin. Uh, so uh, all the best, and uh, I'm, t- I'm sure we'll we'll talk again soon or see each other at a racetrack someplace.
1: Mark, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye.